Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Co-op. This morning, we have the absolute pleasure of having Mr. Paul Hazen on with us this morning. Good morning, Paul. Morning, Gurdon. Glad that you're with us this morning. You've been on before, but this time we get to celebrate your being inducted into the Cooperative Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. It's a great honor. I'm very humble. Uh, to receive this recognition, and I have gotten greetings from people all throughout the country and around the world, and it makes me feel very good. Great. Well, looking at your history, your resume, if you will, you deserve it, and I had the absolute pleasure of being in the beginning of your nomination because Chuck Snyder said, as we were walking in Haynes Points one day, a good friend of both of ours, Paul should be in the Hall of Fame. Will you take that lead? And so I took the lead, and and my taking the lead was to call Liz Bailey and say, Liz, will you work with this on me? And she called Judy Zigwork, and they wrote it up, and two, three years later, here you go. <laughs> well, thanks thanks for doing that, uh, Vernon, and I would hope I would have liked to thank uh, Chuck Snyder for uh, suggesting it. Well, that's, it, you know, it's an idea he planted, and it was about three years ago, and it takes time to, for anything, but that's what Chuck, tremendous visionary, uh, which you and I both had the pleasure of working with and getting a chance to know a great human being, as so are you. Yeah. Well, thank you. So how did your career start in this co-op world? Well, I got involved with democratic politics in college at the University of Wisconsin, uh, seeing public policy as a way to make uh, people's lives better and make the world better. And uh, through that, I, and I worked uh, for a member of Congress from Western Wisconsin. His name was Al Baldus. And his um, political constituency were the cooperatives. And so I would go to co-op meetings with him farmer co-ops, electric co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, and listen to the business of the meeting. And I thought, oh, a business with a social purpose. They're making a difference in people's lives every day. And uh, so after I worked for him, I got involved in cooperatives in Wisconsin. And that led me to working in cooperatives at the national level at the National Cooperative Business Association. So I've spent pretty much my entire career uh, working in the cooperative movement. But you did not learn about it in high school or junior high or college? You, you got- no, you know, actually in Wisconsin, uh, cooperatives are uh, by law uh, to be taught in high school and college. 
And I must have been absent those days because I don't remember <laughs> anything about cooperatives in school. Well, it's interesting to know by law because um, I got two masters, an undergrad, and a, I never heard anything about co-ops in school. But I was—I did not live in Wisconsin. So what was your next job, uh, or your first job in co-ops? What did you do? I worked uh, for nine municipalities in Wisconsin that did group buying uh, together and uh, shared services. This was somewhat of a new idea where local units of government could get together. There was a model already there where school districts would join together to jointly purchase supplies for the schools, but then also share services like you know, um, language teachers. One school couldn't afford to have a full-time language teacher, so they would share it with several schools. And then that idea was extended uh, to local municipalities. So that was basically a purchasing co-op. That's right. That's right. We called it a shared services cooperative, but yes. Uh, it, but. So a purchasing co-op is a business that, um, in this case, a group of municipalities or organizations, nonprofit schools, and they got together to buy their supplies. So if they were buying pencils, uh, 10 schools could buy a lot more pencils than one and therefore get a better quality. And by this company buying it, they got the knowledge of who made the best pencils and they can negotiate a better price for pencils. That's, that's exactly right. And we really focused on strategic issues for the municipalities, economic development, um, and things like that. And that's where I really got in, involved in and learn more about what cooperatives could do on, at local communities uh, in economic development. And of course, in um, Wisconsin, cooperatives are you know a real part of the economy. But uh, in that particular area, an interesting new cooperative got started called Organic Organic Valley, a dairy uh, cooperative that's now the largest organic business in the country. And uh, that didn't come out of our efforts, but that was what the communities were looking for. How do we develop our economy locally? And Organic Valley was product of all that. So now you've just talked about a marketing co-op, which is in another sector. It's called marketing or producer co-ops. And a, a group of dairy farmers probably came together and created Organic Valley so that everybody brought their milk there and organic organic milk and then Organic Valley would sell the milk, make cheese or yogurt or whatever else, produce other things with it. And they got very, very good at that. And the farmers now have somewhere that they know they can sell their product to. And then that company can sell their product throughout the whole U.S. where that farmer couldn't. He could, If it was Wisconsin, he could have probably only sell in this right community around Wisconsin for his milk. That's yeah. that's exactly right. You know, and it's they are, are now a national brand. Uh, you know, with members all over the country and, you know, um, selling their product in the major supermarkets around the country. Okay. So we've talked about purchasing and marketing. You've been in, involved in both of those early on. So after you finished working with these nine municipalities, what did you do next? Well, I went to be executive director of Rural Housing Incorporated, and this was a group that uh, was set up by the electric cooperatives, in Wisconsin, the electric co-op said, you know, we, we supply electricity to our members, 
but we see they have all these housing needs. So they need their houses rehabbed and weatherized, but there was also a need, a understanding or a need of um, affordable housing in rural communities. So we had weatherization programs, but we also developed affordable housing cooperatives in rural communities. Okay, so now you've gone from purchasing co-ops, marketing co-ops, to consumer co-ops. Rural electric or consumer co-ops that the people that buy the electricity, have those meters in their house, own the business. I think there are 900 of those in the U.S. Do I have the number? Yes, that, that's correct. Okay, and they started in the 1930s and so forth. And they help, you all help to create another consumer co-op with limited equity housing co-ops, affordable housing co-ops. Okay, so you're early in your career and you're already working with three of the types of co-op, three sectors. Okay. Yes, that, that's right. And uh, there was not a plan to do that. It just happened. Okay. <laughs> I was in the right place at the right time. All right. So you're working with Rural Housing Incorporate and Electric Co-op started that to provide affordable housing. Where did you go next? Well, I... I got involved with the Wisconsin Federation of Cooperatives. This is the State Association for Cooperatives. And um, knew many people there because of my political work. And uh, through that, um, they suggested that there was a job opening at uh, the National Cooperative Business Association in Washington, D.C. Really appealed to me. I was uh, ended up as a, the director of consumer cooperatives. Uh, at NCBA, so I moved from Wisconsin to uh, to Washington D.C. And NCBA is the national apex organization for all types of cooperatives, all the all the types that we've been talking about uh, already. And my job there was I did advocacy work on Capitol Hill for consumer cooperatives, but I also did um, education and training programs uh, for consumer cooperatives. So what is advocacy work? Well, we, I guess we, we would call it uh, lobbying. So uh, one of the things that I did early on is I worked on the law that created the national standard for organic uh, agricultural products. Oh, okay. Uh, the uh, food cooperatives in the U.S. were very interested in that. They, they had been trendsetters and created a market for organic products, but there wasn't one standard. And so we worked um, with uh, with Congress to pass a law that then the Department of Agriculture implemented that created a national standard for organic products. So advocacy is basically lobbying, and lobbying is going to your political folk, and it's the House or the Senate to say, here's what we need in our community. And And that's true. And what our approach always was was grassroots advocacy. You know, cooperatives have 120, there are 120 million members of cooperatives in the United States. And uh, now this is pre-email. We used to be, we used to say we could make it snow on Capitol Hill by putting the word out and getting our co-op members to write letters to members of Congress. And we would flood uh, members of Congress's offices with letters of support for whatever particular legislation that we were supporting. Okay. Flood members of Congress with letters, make it rain letters, snow letters in, on the hill uh, from 120 million 
people that are members of co-ops in the U.S. But I found out, Paul, that most of those people don't know their members. Well, that's true. But uh, I don't remember the exact year. But it was in the early 2000s. We did several Gallup surveys of people and, and their attitudes towards cooperatives. And, yes, we found out about 40% of people really understood that they were a member of cooperative. But when you explained to them what cooperatives are, you know, we got up into the mid-60s of people understanding cooperatives. And what was really powerful about that is when you explained a cooperative, people, about 90% of people said, yes, I'd like to buy or participate in a cooperative if, if those are the principles and values that they're purporting. So, you know, it's like there's a reason that um, advertisers repeat the same message over and over again. You have to constantly remind people about your product. And we certainly in the cooperative community could do a better job. I'm very pleased that over the last decade or so, more cooperatives are identifying themselves as cooperatives in their advertising. And that's really important for people to understand that, you know, when you say, you know, Land O'Lakes is a cooperative, Ace Hardware is a cooperative, uh, Nationwide Insurance is a cooperative, Associated Press is a cooperative, uh, the credit union and the food co-op down the street, you know, people really respond to that positively. Yes. And I can't tell you how many people, when I say Ocean Spray is a cooperative, they don't know that. I didn't. I drank it all the time, but had no idea it was a co-op. <laughs> Uh, there's so many, so much of our products and and uh, particular foods, food, these marketing and uh, purchasing co-ops, the agriculture uses. Okay, so we've talked about all the three sectors, and we haven't talked about uh, worker co-ops. Uh, so, have you done much work with worker co-ops? Well, you know, in most of the world, worker cooperatives are a really big deal. But let me, uh, let's talk about that big deal when we come back from our break. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll be right back, everybody. We'll talk about worker co-ops and what's happening with co-ops now. We'll be right back. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have the absolute pleasure of talking with Mr. Paul Hazen this morning. Paul is being inducted into the Cooperative Hall of Fame this year. Uh, that dinner will be on October the 6th, and if you want to go, you can go to cdf.coop and look up events and get your tickets and find out all about it. Paul, we were just going over his resume, if you will, his history, how he got into co-ops. And right before we took the break, uh, we were talking about worker co-ops. So, Paul, you were saying that worker co-ops are all over the world. What, what else were you going to tell us about worker co-ops? Well, in many countries, they are major businesses, you know, with thousands and thousands of employees, in all different economic sectors, manufacturing, um, retail, things like that. And uh, that really never caught on much here in the United States until the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. And when you look at the history of cooperatives here in the U.S., they come in waves following economic upheaval of some type. So if you take a look at the Great Depression following that, there was a great wave of cooperative development and uh, credit unions, electric co-ops, consumer cooperatives. So when the Great Recession of 
2008-2009 hit and the inequality was exposed in this country, many people said there has to be a different way to organize our economy. And that has led to a tremendous interest in organizing worker cooperatives, employee-owned businesses, cooperatives that empower people, give them an opportunity for an ownership stake. And it's uh, it, and we've been riding that wave ever since 2008, 2009. And the wave is only increasing of people more and more interest in uh, worker cooperatives or employee-owned businesses. A great example is right here in Washington, D.C., the owners of a few cool hardware stores, the Ace Hardware Store here in Washington, D.C. Part of the business has been sold to the employees. Um, so the, now they are not only workers, but they're owners of that uh, very successful business. So uh, we did have Gina Schaefer on uh, a few weeks ago, and she said that they own now 30% of the business. And over time, depending on how profitable it is, they will own 100% of the business, those employees. I think they're 13 cool hardware stores. Okay. That's right. Okay. Uh, and she's a delight to talk to. Uh, so you said this wave is since the 2008-2009. Uh, but before, I want to talk more about that wave. But before we do, you mentioned principles and values. And one you've already talked about when you were doing advocacy work. It was also about education and training. And that's the fifth principle. And that's the one I first liked about co-ops is how much training can happen and how people can learn every day. It's not like you need a formal college degree or anything to get in and learn how to run a business. And that's what you do if you get into a co-op. So what has been your view uh, over the years of the values and principles of cooperation? Well, the principles of, you know, democratic control of the business, member economic participation, concern from communities, that's the structure of the business, and that's very important. But the values of self-help, self-responsibility, solidarity, honesty, you know, that's what really sets uh, cooperatives apart from other types of businesses when we put those values into place. And that's where, that's always been my focus about why our businesses uh, are different and, in my view, better, because they put, in, in the case of the uh, cooperatives, they put the member first over profit. Uh, profit's important. you got to run successful business. And I'll just give you an example of something I was involved with yesterday. I'm on the board of directors of the Community Purchasing Alliance here in Washington, D.C., this is a purchasing cooperative for community-based organizations, religious institutions, faith-based organizations, nonprofits. And we were getting ready to do just, a... Let me just cut you off a minute. You're being very modest. You have to start that if you weren't the <laughs> idea generator behind it. Uh, what, yeah. now seven years ago or so? Yeah, that's that's right. And, yeah, you, yeah, and you all are going now from D.C. to other parts of the country starting these for... Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're expanding to Boston and Cleveland and Chicago, and it's been a, a great ride. But um, we were getting ready to do a, a elect electricity procurement. And if you've been following things in the energy markets, it's very volatile. And some of the electric suppliers were quoting 30% uh, increases in their price. Now, right now, Pepco here in Washington has, happens to be the better price. And the co-op, when we aggregate, we don't make a any profit, any money off of the Pepco uh, contract. 
because that's open to anybody. So we actually recommended that our members go with Pepco and not through the co-op because it's a better deal for our members. So the co-op is actually losing revenue, but we we did we, we did what was best for the members. And right now, the best price is through Pepco. So that's an example of putting the member first versus a, a for-profit business that wouldn't make any money off of that deal. So they would probably recommend one of the higher price suppliers. 99.9% chance, yes, that they would recommend the one that gives them the most profit because in my MBA program, it was a return on investment. Decisions were made on the choices which gives you the best return on investment. There's no return if you go to Pepco because there's no profit. You don't go there. You don't get any business. So the best return on investment with those two strategies is you do the other one, which is not necessarily good for the member. So, yes, got it. Yeah. And so what I've learned uh, on this program and working with people like you is that co-ops have three P's that they work with. And priority first is people, the members, the client. The second is the planet, so the community and the people in the community. And the third is profit. Have to make it, like you said, have to make a profit. But that's not, you don't make all your decisions on a profit. Okay, so that's wonderful. Values, you said it's self-help and solidarity. Could you explain that a little bit? Because it seems to be almost self-help is for me, solidarity is for us. Seems like that's contradictory in a sense. Well, there's also a concept there of mutual benefit. What is good for the group is also good for me. That's the way you need to think about that. Turn that kind of, it's I'm first versus as a group, we're better off. And one of the challenges that we have in cooperatives, in order to think that way, you have to give up a little bit of control. So you're responsible for yourself, but you're also responsible uh, in a mutual way for other people in your in your group. And when you can put that into practice, that's very powerful. Bringing a group of people together who think that we're all better off if we work together. That's That can be very powerful. So Jessica Gordon-Imhart has been on the program several times in her book, Collective Carriage, talking about the history of co-ops in the black community. And it seems like through slavery, through Jim Crow, through all of it, it was we're better off working together. Matter of fact, that's how we get through the struggle. You said that through the Great Depression, the Great Recession is through struggle. We pool resources. But in the black community, it has been there all of the time. You know, that's that's what that's exactly right, Vernon. And that's why cooperatives are so prevalent in rural rural communities, because, you know, in order to compete in the marketplace, you have to have, you know, economic power. And if you're a small community of a thousand people, you know, you need to join together with other small communities of a thousand people. So that's why they're so successful in rural areas here in the United States and around the world. And. Um, in my day job now, I'm, I'm working in cooperative development in the developing world, and we're working in many cases with smallholder farmers that maybe have a hectare of land, and the only way that they're going to succeed is by working uh, with their neighbors in, in a cooperative. So the developing world, that is Alabama, southern West Virginia, um, where I'm from, the, the lots and lots of poverty in, in different places in, in the world, but you're talking about overseas. You're not necessarily talking about the U.S. Yes, but the same principles come into play, you know, 
And the interesting thing is the federal government, you know, supports cooperatives in the developing world uh, because they, they see what they've been able to do for rural America. And yes, there's a lot more work to be done uh, in places like Alabama and, and like that. But I think the communities are much better off with the cooperatives they have and they can build upon that to, you know, increase the number of co-ops in those particular communities. So you've given us your life history all the way to your current day job. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about that. We're going to take our second break. And I also want to talk about this way that you've talked about and then get into some of the research that your current day job has been doing. Okay. So we'll be right back, everybody, talking to Mr. Paul Hazen, who is the inductee into this year, 2022 Cooperative Hall of Fame. And he's the first of five that we will be talking to. At least we're going to talk to a total of four. The fifth one is an unsung hero, and I'll give you a little bit of information about that later. We'll be right back. Your news talk station. The program is Everything Cooperative. We talk about the benefits of co-ops and with us this morning is Mr. Paul Hazen, who has been working, as he just said, he's working now. His day job is the executive director of the Overseas Corporate Development Council. And you had mentioned a wave of co-ops in the U.S. since the Great Recession. How are you seeing that wave and what's different from when you first started in this co-op world? You know, these waves occur when there are market failures and people don't have access to basic goods and services. And so what we saw in the Great Recession was a failure of the financial markets. And the interesting thing is people flocked from banks to credit unions, to credit and savings cooperatives. And their membership and deposits went up tremendously because people saw that this is a business that was stable and that would look out for their best interests when the financial markets were collapsing. And uh, so that's a, that's a great example of, of a wave. And then, of course, as I mentioned, uh, the Great Recession exposed the tremendous inequality in our country. And people said, you know, I'd like to find a different way to have a job in different types of businesses in my community. And this time around, we're seeing a, a tremendous grassroots interest in cooperatives. And in my career, we're really seeing local units of government get involved with promoting cooperatives for their communities. And uh, I've not seen that before until this particular wave. And uh, we see cities all over the country, New York City, Milwaukee, Oakland, California, Austin, Texas, Madison, Wisconsin, putting into place public policy and resources that promote cooperatives, whether they're worker co-ops or food co-ops or housing cooperatives to address the inequalities that they see in their communities. Unfortunately, the federal government with all their issues just are not players any longer, even though we're seeing more support for cooperatives at the federal level, at the national level. And I hope that, you know, what eventually evolves out of this is a partnership and a strategy between all units of government in helping to promote cooperatives. 
So you talk about the inequality. So I think that you're saying, for example, that um, blacks' uh, wealth, the amount of money, the amount that they have in assets, what they own over what they owe, is like $17,000 the average family, where for in a white family, average family is 171000 So blacks' wealth is like 10% of the wealth that a white family have averages. And that was before COVID. I have no idea what it's like now. And that's the inequality you're talking about? Absolutely. Yep. That's You hit the nail on the head, Vernon. And uh, so it's it's wealth building, opportunity for wealth building. And, you know, one of the areas where most families accumulate wealth is through home ownership. And for many people, home ownership is out of reach. But an effective tool for that is limited equity housing cooperatives. So you get the efficiency of a you know, group housing situation, but also a low, low cost of entry for a family to become a, an owner. And that's an area where many local governments are trying to deal with the affordable housing cr- crisis in their community, and they're turning to limited equity housing co-ops as a one, one solution. It's not the only solution, but it's one solution for affordable housing and it provides an opportunity for wealth building for families. So I just want to give a shout out to Anita Bonds, council member here in the district who created a task force and you chair that I was on it. And that's where I got to work with you close by and got this tremendous respect for you and the way you ran that um, committee. And what does she get out of that? Or why do you think she did that committee on limited equity housing co-ops? Well, you know, she chairs the housing committee on the D.C. Council, and, you know, she sees the incredible crisis around affordable housing in Washington, D.C., just like major cities across the country. And at the same time, she's hearing from constituents about the inequality, about the lack of opportunities for people to build wealth. And, and, you know, to her credit, she put both of those together and said, "Okay, here's a model. Now I'm going to turn to the experts, the Vernon Oaks of the world and others here in Washington, D.C. that know how to do this to make recommendations to the D.C. City Council on how, from a public policy standpoint, uh, they can uh, strengthen existing limited equity housing co-ops and promote new ones. So we did a couple years of research and halfway through that in one of the meetings with her, she exclaimed in in a high voice and excitement, co-ops are the answer to gentrification. And that, that sort of hit me. I, I got that. She she got it, and I got it. Yeah. And just an example of um, how things are changing in the recent uh, D.C. Democratic primary for council, two of the candidates who both were successful uh, for D.C. City Council made cooperatives a part of their platform, you know, and not as not as an afterthought, but placed it right up front. And that's that's the difference we're seeing now than maybe several decades ago when you wouldn't necessarily have candidates running for office making you know, cooperatives part of their platform. So I hope that they do the same thing that Madison has done in New York, and that is put millions of dollars per year in to, to create worker co-ops and other forms of co-ops and money in that our research said for limited equity housing co-ops, what needs to happen to create more and keep the ones we have now. That's right. Uh, I just want to mention one quick thing is that you mentioned 07, 08 and the Great Recession, field co-ops, but 
COVID-19 brought out the inequalities and field co-ops and George Floyd murder on trial on, on TV helped to show up the inequalities of what happens in the U.S. So racism, COVID-19 and health disparities has all shown this and the Great Recession and the Great Depression. All of these things help people to see how co-ops is an answer, and I quite think it's the answer from everything that I've learned in my 75 years here on Earth. Paul, what do you think? Is it an answer or the answer? Well, I would make the argument that that uh, you know, it's in a, the cooperative sector of the economy is very important for all the topics you just raised, inequality and wealth building and things like that. And if the market was working perfectly, uh, then you know there might not be a need as much for cooperatives. But the market doesn't work perfectly, and so there is an important role for the for cooperatives in there to make sure that everybody has economic opportunity and there's social inclusion. You know, that's the other big aspect of cooperatives is making making sure that everybody has an opportunity to be included in society in an equal manner. And uh, that's a role that uh, cooperatives constantly play. That social inclusion is what Dame Pauline Green said on the show. Um, she was the, um, the president of ICA, International Cooperative Alliance. She said, Co-ops help, help to bring people out of poverty with dignity. That dignity is that social inclusion. They have voice. Yes, I get right. it. That's right. Okay, and so I want to talk now about the research that OCDC is doing around the world. Tell me about the, the some of the research that you are doing and what are you <clears throat> finding in terms of co-ops? So there's, there's a lot of research on cooperatives around the world, but very little of it in the developing world where – where I work and the organization and my members or members of the organization work. So Africa, Latin America, you know, Southern Asia. And uh, uh, there was very little data available and to do research. And so uh, the members of the Overseas Cooperative Development Council decided that there was a void here and that in order to affect good public policy, we needed data and research that we could present uh, to policymakers, to multilateral organizations like the UN and World Bank and organizations like that. So we've been conducting research now for about four years on cooperatives in the developing world. Our first major research project was entitled, What Difference Do Cooperatives Make? And we went into four countries and looked at cooperative members and compared them to non-co-op members. And what we found in every country regardless of the sectors, is that co-op members are better off financially than non-co-op members. So there's an economic advantage and that you're less likely to be poor or very poor. So uh, cooperatives are a very effective tool to lift people out of poverty, as Dame Pauline Green said. So that's a, that's, a, you know, we have data and research to back that up. Now that's a powerful message to a policymaker is that if you're, uh, thinking about promoting cooperatives in your country. We also found that cooperatives are a very effective way for women to access the formal economy. In many developing countries, women are excluded from the formal economy, and so they're kind of underground, and so they don't receive all the benefits from you know the formal economy. But a cooperative is a pathway 
to that formal economy. And again, very powerful message there about inequality and inclusion of, of people. So, you know, that's kind of the big picture, what, what we're finding. Uh, but we're also doing research on, you know, how the savings and credit cooperatives can help youth, you know, improve themselves and get the jobs and get into uh, the formal economy. So we have a whole variety of research that we're doing, and, and we are continuing to do that work. We did a lot of work around COVID and how resilient cooperatives were during COVID. Again, what we found, like during the Great Recession, uh, people flocked to cooperatives because of, they could trust the information they were getting from the cooperative, um, and there were great benefits of being a co-op member. So again, when COVID turned out to be an economic uh, crisis, but it started out as a health crisis. But again, the co-op was there to provide uh, benefits to their members. Benefits to members. And those four countries, the two I remember, are Kenya and Peru. And the other two were Poland and the Philippines. So in all of those countries, you had the same kind of results? It didn't make any difference? Yeah, well, I mean, with the... The percentages were different, but the result was the was the same. Some countries were like Peru; the, the benefits were greater than another country. But they were basically we could make that statement that in all four countries, people are better off financially if they're a member of a cooperative. People are better off. Okay. Well, that's the reason we started this show, in in that belief. Uh, now you've had research to prove the belief. So we've got all of these cities now that are, are doing this work. They, they are getting on. They, they're getting the message if they wanted to help uh, people. So when we come back, I really want to know if, if, if you could tell the U.S. government and state governments what they need to do in order to improve their communities, kind of what kinds of things with your history have shown that and you're lobbying and starting off working on the Hill, what would you tell the U.S. government? That's what I'd like this next segment. It's more future coming out of COVID. Hopefully we're coming out of COVID. It keeps sticking its head back up. But what can we do? What can we tell the U.S. government that we want them to do to improve communities through cooperation? We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. Um, Paul, we've been on the air almost nine years. October will make it nine years. And when we had this idea about this show, we went to Chuck Snyder at NCB and told him about it and he wanted more and more people to know about co-ops. I didn't know about this Gallup survey of 40% of Americans knew about it. If you told him more, it got up to 60. Uh, I really want that to come up to 100%. That's why we have this show, and that's why NCB has been a sponsor and a great sponsor over these nine years, not only financial support, but really teaching us about the co-op world and introducing us to the, the folks in the cooperative world. So they've just been a great 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 partner 
And I love talking to you because I learn. I like knowing about this Gallup survey. I want to get more information about that. And now I want to learn from you. What would you tell the U.S. government or state governments that they can do to help communities, to help people in communities and bring folks out of poverty with dignity? Well, I think the first thing that um, policymakers need to do is to make a, a statement that uh, cooperatives are part of their economic community development uh, social inclusion strategy. That from a policy standpoint, we want cooperatives in our communities and we're going to do our best to create what we call a cooperative ecosystem to allow cooperatives to flourish. And so what's an ecosystem for cooperatives? Well, the first thing a government can do is to make sure that there are good laws and regulations that allow cooperatives to operate at their best. And that unfortunately is a big stumbling block in many places where that is not particularly the case. And Vernon, you mentioned the limited equity cooperative housing task force that we both served on here in Washington, DC. That was one of the things that we pointed out to the city council is that limited equity housing co-ops were many times at a disadvantage for funding for affordable housing you know, because of regulations that the D.C. government had, had put into place. So we have to correct those type of things. So good laws and good regulations. And then, you know, the governments provide a lot of uh, financial support for uh, economic development activities, whether it's uh, through direct funding or taxing policies that uh, allow for business. And so co-ops need to have access to all those, all those same programs. And so that there's technical assistance that's available and education and training for co-ops members and co-op boards of directors. And they need to and governments need to be looking at where there are gaps that don't allow cooperatives to flourish. You mentioned the National Cooperative Bank. In the 1970s, Congress recognized that co-ops were at a disadvantage because they did not have access to credit. Commercial banks were not interested in loaning to cooperatives. And so Congress passed a law to create the National Cooperative Bank. And now we have a very successful bank that knows how to finance cooperatives and knows how to promote them. So that's a that's a good example. And we need to be looking uh, more for those opportunities. There is a bill in Congress right now to provide uh, funding for uh, limited equity housing co-ops at a level that hasn't been around since, you know, the early 1980s. And so, you know, that's a, that bills a step right in the right direction. But again, they, the governments need to look at where there are opportunities to promote uh, cooperatives around what's, this cooperative ecosystem. What's the name of that? Is that Browning? What's the name of that? Uh, the congressman out of New York that put that forth. That's, yeah. that's right. And I'm not recalling his name off the okay. top of my head. But. Okay. So you said in the ecosystem, you need laws, you need funding, you need money, you need technical support to how you start them, how you govern them. You need training to get people to know how to work together. Um, I also put in there promotions because I think we do in the co-op world, we don't, we do a really good job of training internally, uh, in terms of inside of the business, if it's a, whatever the business is, worker co-op or whatever. And we may do, good in talking around other worker co-ops, but we don't do a very good job of telling the public about co-ops. And I really want 100% of Americans to know about co-ops like 
100% like they know about the other model, capitalistic model. So what do you think about how we can promote this cooperative brand more better? Well, and we've talked about this earlier, you know, existing cooperatives can promote their co-op identity. And, you know, some people say, well, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm a member of a cooperative and I don't participate in the cooperative. Well, if you're a member of a credit union or a member of a food co-op, every time you go to the credit union ATM or you go and buy food at the food co-op, you know, you're participating in the cooperative movement. You know, uh, you might not go to the annual meeting, but you know, if you're using your cooperative, that's that's how you're promoting it. So I think that's one thing that you need to get people to understand is that there are these businesses in their communities that are working every day to change the world. You know, whether it's a food co-op that's buying local, which the food co-ops are way ahead of everybody else in buying local decades ago uh, to support local agriculture and the local economy. So looking for businesses that are uh, are promoting lo- you know the local community. We mentioned the Community Purchasing Alliance Co-op of uh, organizations here in D.C. The church I go to is a member of that, and they buy our church gets our trash hauling services from a locally owned black-owned business that pay their employees a living wage. And uh, we could have gotten it cheaper someplace else, but they pay their employees a living wage, and so we say. We're changing the world the world every time we take the trash out uh, okay. because we're supporting that local business that's paying a living wage to their employees. And I, my sense is from what, in following CPA is that they may be paying more than you could have gotten, but they're paying less than what they were doing before they joined the co-op. Is that right? That's that's right. They're getting better. The co-op members are getting better pricing uh, for with businesses that they want, want to support. Okay. And uh, what we found in trash hauling, for example, these national trash hauling companies prey on nonprofits because they don't necessarily have the professional staff to negotiate the best contract. And the co-op provides that service for them. Okay, so there's a sixth principle called cooperation among co-ops. And so within this co-op ecosystem, that's also there, co-ops helping each other. Yeah, yeah, and that's very important. And we could learn lessons from co-op movements around the world that uh, have really created uh, their own portion of the economy by working together. And, you know, I think we were seeing more and more of that across the country. And, you know, I constantly preach to the members of the Overseas Cooperative Development Council, let's do business with companies that share our same values. You know, that's how we're going to make sure that we have change. So um, I think every one of us can take a look at that, about the values we have, and how we put those into practice when we spend our own dollars. You know, are we patronizing companies that share the same values that, that we have and are trying to build the community up? So I like the ethical values of cooperation, honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. I like to call it caring for one another, the golden rule. Uh, that solidarity you were talking about, how we, how we help ourselves by getting everybody to rise. Uh, so, yes, those are the values I like. And it's not only shopping. I only want to work with companies or talk with companies or people that share those kind of values. That's right. That's right. That's that's so important. And I think the more that businesses, you know, uh, promote their values, I think that's better for 
the society in general. So in your career, you helped to create, when you were at NCBA, you helped to create rural corporate development uh, centers. One of the things I would like to see is where we have urban corporate development centers. What do you think about telling the government that? That absolutely, and, and that's and that's occurring in these cities where the governments are putting money into local co-op development. For example, in Madison, Wisconsin, the city council put money into worker cooperatives, and out of that has evolved an organization that's uh, promoting worker cooperatives. Same thing in Cleveland. Uh, Ohio, New York City. So these urban cooperative development centers are not getting funding from the federal government in most cases, but from local governments. And, you know, that's another way to go about it. So I think what we need to do is to network these urban centers like the rural centers are networked and so that they can, again, go back to that mutual benefit principle. Okay. What what message would you like to leave people with today, Paul? Well, you started off by, you know, introducing me as a, going to be inducted in the Cooperative Hall of Fame. And I've had a really wonderful career, and it's not over yet. I have lots of things I want to do. But I didn't do all these things by myself. I had a lot of great people who worked with me, and, and maybe I was a catalyst, but a lot of other people accomplished, helped me accomplish these things. And I just want people to know that, and that's a, that's the spirit of cooperation, is people working together. So I just want to thank all the people that I've had the privilege of working with over the years and uh, look forward to continuing to work together. Paul, thank you so very much for being on the show today. I really appreciate what you have done and all that you teach me and our friendship that has come out of this cooperation. So everybody... That finishes our show today. We will be back next Thursday. Uh, we have a total of five inductees. Uh, Ella Jo Baker is the first unsung hero that will be on. And please live cooperatively this week. Your news talks to.